Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show, we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today, we're reading some poetry. The first is The Butterfly's Ball and the Grasshopper's Feast. This is a poem by William Roscoe, published in 1802. It has since been adapted into an animated short and a rock opera. Come take up your hats and away let us haste to the butterfly's ball and the grasshopper's feast. The trumpeter gadfly has summoned the crew and the revels are now only waiting for you. So said little Robert and pacing along his merry companions came through in a throng and on the smooth grass by the side of a wood beneath a broad oak that for ages had stood saw the children of earth and the tenets of air for an evening's amusement together repair. And there came the beetle, so blind and so black, who carried the emmet, his friend, on his back. And there was the gnat, the dragonfly too, with all their relations, green, orange, and blue. And there came the moth, with his plumage of down, and the hornet in a jacket of yellow and brown. Who with him the wasp his companion did bring, and they promised that evening to lay by their sting. And the sly little dormouse crept out of his hole and brought to the feast his blind brother, the mole. And the snail with his horns peeping out of his shell came from a great distance, the length of an L, a mushroom their table, and on it was laid a water dock leaf with a tablecloth made. The viands were various to each of their taste, and the bee brought her honey to crown the repast. Then, close on his haunches, so solemn and wise, the frog from a corner looked up to the skies. And the squirrel, well pleased such diversions to see, mounted high overhead and looked down from a tree. Then out came the spider, with finger so fine, to shrew his dexterity on the tight line. From one branch to another his cobwebs he slung, then quick as an arrow he darted along, but just in the middle, oh, shocking to tell, from his rope in an instant poor Harlequin fell. Yet he touched not the ground, but with talons outspread, hung suspended in air at the end of a thread. Then the grasshopper came with a jerk and a spring, very long was his leg, though but short was his wing. He took but three leaps and was soon out of sight, then chirruped his own praises for the rest of the night. With steps so majestic, the snail did advance and promised the gazers a minuet to dance. But they all laughed so loud that he pulled in his head and went in his own little chamber to bed. Then, as the evening gave way to the shadows of night, their watchman, the glowworm, came out with a light. Then home let us hasten while yet we can see, for no watchman is waiting for you and for me. So said little Robert, pacing along, his merry companions returned in a throng. This poem had two sequels. The Peacock at Home was written as a continuation by Catherine Anne Dorset. The butterfly's ball and the grasshopper's feast excited the spleen of the birds and the beast, for their mirth and good cheer of the bee was a theme, and the gnat blew his horn and he danced in the beam. Twas hummed by the beetle, twas buzzed by the fly, and sung by the myriads that sport through the sky. The quadrupeds listened with sullen displeasure, but the tenants of air were enraged beyond measure. The peacock displayed his bright plumes to the sun, and addressing his mates thus indignant begun. 
Shall we, like domestic inelegant fowls, as unpolished as geese and as stupid as owls, sit tamely at home, humdrum with our spouses, while crickets and butterflies open their houses? Shall such mean little insects pretend to the fashion? Cousin Turkeycock, well may you be in a passion, for I suffer such insolent airs to prevail. May Juno pluck out all the eyes in my tail." And so a fit I will give, and by taste I'll display, and send out my cards for St. Valentine's Day. This determined six fleet carrier pigeons went out to invite all the birds to Sir Argus's rout. The nest-loving turtle dove sent an excuse. Dame Partlet lay in, as did good Mrs. Goose. The turkey, poor soul, was confined to the rip, for all her young brood had just failed with the pip. The partridge was asked, but a neighbour hard by had engaged a snug party to meet in a pie, and the wheatear declined, recollecting her cousins last year to a feast were invited by dozens. But alas, they returned not, and she had no taste to appear in a costume of vine leaves on a plate. The woodcock preferred his lone haunt on the moor, and the traveller swallow was still on his tour, while the cuckoo, who should have been one of the guests, was rambling on visits to other birds' nests. But the rest all accepted the kind invitation, and much bustle it caused in the plumed creation. Such ruffling of feathers, such pruning of coats, such chirping, such whistling, such clearing of throats, such polishing bills, and such oiling of pinions, had never been known in the biped dominions. For all the young birdlings who wished to be bows, he made for the robin a doublet of red, and a new velvet cap for the goldfinch's head. He added a plume to the wren's golden crest, and spangled with silver the guinea fowl's breast while the halcyon bent over the streamlet to view how pretty she looked in her bodice of blue. Thus adorned, they set off for the peacock's abode, with the guide indicator who showed them the road. From all points of the compass flocked birds of all feather, and the parrot can tell who and who were together. There was Lord Cassowary and General Flamingo, and Don Perquito escaped from Domingo. From his high-built rock eyrie the eagle came forth, and the Duchess Ptarmigan flew from the north. The grebe and the eider duck came up by water with the swan who brought out the young signet, her daughter. From his woodland abode came the pheasant to meet two kindred arrived from the last India fleet. The one, like Nabob, in habit most splendid, where gold with each hue of the rainbow was blended, in silver and black like a fair pensive maid who mourns for her love was the other arrayed. The chow came from Cornwall and brought up his wife. The grouse travelled south from his lairdship in Fife. The bunting forsook her soft nest in the reeds, and the widow bird came, though she still wore her weeds. Sir John Heron of the lakes strutted in a grand paw, but no card had been sent to the pilfering door, as the peacock kept up his progenitor's quarrel, which Aesop relates about cast-off apparel. For birds are like men in their contests together, and in questions of right can dispute for a feather. The peacock imperial, the pride of his race, received all his guests with an infinite grace, waved high his blue neck and his train he displayed, embroidered with gold and with emeralds inlaid. Then, with all the gay troop to the shrubbery repaired, where the musical birds had a concert prepared, a holly bush formed the orchestra, and in it sat the blackbird, the thrush, the lark, and the linnet. 
A bullfinch, a captive almost from the nest, now escaped from his cage, and with liberty blessed, in a sweet mellow tone joined the lessons of art with the accents of nature which flowed from his heart. The canary, a much-admired foreign musician, condescended to sing to the fowls of condition, while the nightingale warbled and quavered so fine that they all clapped their wings and declared it divine. The skylark in ecstasy sang from a cloud, and Chanticleer crowed, and the yaffil laughed aloud. The dancing began when the singing was over. A dotterel first opened the ball with the plover. Baron Stork in a waltz was allowed to excel with his beautiful partner, the fair demoiselle. And a newly-fledged gosling, so fair and genteel, a minuet swam with the spruce Mr. Teal. A London-bred sparrow, a pert forward sit, danced a reel with Miss Wagtail and little Tom Tit. And the Sieur Gilmot next performed a passule, while the elderly bipeds were playing a pool. The dowager toucan was first to cut in with old Dr. Buzzard and Admiral Peregrine. From her ivy-bush tower came Dame Owlet the Wise, and the Councillor Crossbill sat by to advise. Some birds passed their prime, o'er whose heads it was fated, should pass many St. Valentines, yet be unmated, sat by and remarked that the prudent and sage were quite overlooked in this frivolous age. When birds scarce pen-feathered were brought to a rout, forward chits from the eggshell but newly come out. In their youthful days they ne'er witnessed such frisking. And how wrong in the greenfinch to flirt with the siskin, so thought Lady Macaw to her friend Cockatoo. And the raven foretold that no good would ensue. They censored the bantam for strutting and crowing in those vile pantaloons, which he fancied looked knowing, and a want of decorum caused many demurs against the game chicken for coming in spurs. Old Elder Comrant, for supper impatient, at the eating-room door for an hour had been stationed, till a magpie at length the banquet announced, gave the signal long wished for, of clamouring and pouncing at the well-furnished board all were eager to perch, but the little Miss Creepers were left in the lurch. Description must fail, and the pen is unable to recount all the luxuries that covered the table. Each Delicate viand that taste could denote, wasps a la sauce piquante, and flies on compote, worms and frogs in friture, and the web-footed fowl, and a barbecued mouse was prepared for the owl, nuts, grains, fruit and fish to regale every palate, and groundsel and chickweed served up in a salad. The razor-bill carved for the famished group, and the spoon-bill obligingly ladled the soup. So they filled all their crops with the dainties before them, and the tables were cleared with the utmost decorum. When they gaily had carolled till peep of the dawn, the lark gently hinted, "'Twas time to be gone,' and his clarion so shrill gave the company warning that Chanticleer scented the gales of the morning. So they chirruped in full chorus a friendly adieu, and with hearts beating light as the plumage that grew on their merry thought bosoms, away they all flew. Then long live the peacock, in splendour unmatched, whose ball shall be talked of by birds yet unhatched. His praise let the trumpeter loudly proclaim, and the goose lend her quill to transmit it to fame. 
The last in this trilogy is The Lion's Masquerade and the Elephant's Champette by Ted Walker. The Wrath of Royalty Leonis, king of the jungle, was feeling low and jaded. All the radiant colours of his inner rainbow faded. When Leone de Lioness, his good and faithful wife, regaled him with the details of the insect's social life. In Lepidoptera province they had held an event, too dazzling to describe. Simply everybody went. Queen Leone informed him, Believe me, dear, I know, for Daphne Mezerum, my mate, has told me so. We are disinclined to listen to reports of gadfly jollity or meretitious moths in their desperate frivolity, the king exclaimed. However much miserum enthused, you may take it from us, my dear, that we are not amused. We are no romping cub forever bent on play and mirth. We are dignified and middle-aged and ample in girth. A sovereign spends a serious life, and queens should spend their days at something quite sensible, like broderie anglaise. The king prowled the palace's tessellated floors. He eavesdropped conversations, listened at open doors. What he heard displeased him. His courtiers, one and all, were gushing with gossip of the butterfly ball. His majesty was miffed. In a sudden fit of pique, he made a slow safari to far-off Mozambique, by way of Kilimanjaro leaving his royal spoor, between the sunlit snowcaps where the eagle used to soar. Not a bird made wing through the equatorial sky, but the king did not pause to stop and wonder why, and several nights elapsed devoid of nightingale song, before it slowly dawned on him that something was wrong. Past Lake Tanganyika, where the water wallowers steam and the ripe, trampled pineapples so succulently gleam, he glowered over Zambia, glared at the broad Zambesi, and still he saw no birds. He grew restless and uneasy. At length, in a clearing, Leonis chanced to see a hummingbird no bigger than a bumblebee. Sipping from hibiscus, it dipped its delicate bill, deep for a delicious nectar, hovering bright and still. Lovely jewel of our crown, King Lion said, please say, where are your great cousins, our noble birds of prey? Where are our goldfinch, our gannet, and our swan? Where have all the members of our feathered family gone? Sire, replied the hummingbird, I cannot tell a lie. Every bird with big wings of humbled birth and high has fled six thousand miles to your kingdom's father's part for the party of Sir Percival de Proud Peacock Bart. Then almighty anger rent the cloudless heaven asunder with deep-throated rancour as reverberative as thunder. The scruff-neck hyena stifled his cackling laugh, and voiceless ever after was the still-legged giraffe. Whoa, that nouveau riche colonial, that foppish popping jay, how dare he have pretensions to be so distingué! "'Diminishing our glory with base grandiloquence,' roared Leonis the Mighty with rapid eloquence. His growl filled the world, and then it came to pass that Leonis leapt home through the swishing elephant grass. All his subjects trembled. Would his tantrum abate before he reached his palace with its massive bronze gate? "'Shall the proud Sir Percy receive the royal mercy?' 
does the king have in mind to be vengeful or kind? Those close to him believe he has something up his sleeve. Lord of the Jungle Whatever can vex Leonus, lord of the golden savannah, omnipotent Rex? On his sovereign throne, King Lion alone commands enormous Africa's Hazana, from Morocco to the Cape, from Sudan to Sierra Leone. With fury and fire, he has denounced the peacock's disloyalty in regal attire and wearing the ring of authority. The king has averred, No fowl may emulate royalty. Sir Percival's flaunting party was a trivial, vulgar fling. A fanfare heralds his majesty's decree. What will the peacock's punishment be? More taut than a drum, with every flinching ear cocked to listen, the brush is struck dumb. All the birds of the veld and the jungles have knelt, lustrous as diadems and sceptres they glisten, begging the king's forgiveness, praying his anger will melt. We hereby prescribe, he smiles, that we shall grant our lenience to the feathered tribe, and we further ordain that our Lord Chamberlain shall arrange a soiree of such magnificence as shall never be known in the kingdom again. The king has commanded a splendid cavalcade. By whom shall all the arrangements be made? Calculus, Lord Chamberlain. I am Calculus, the crocodile. Do not misunderstand the smile with which I favour all your hoi polloi. I have a double denture which I'll use if pre-adventure you should do the slightest thing that might annoy. King Lion has commissioned me expert in dactylonomy, which means that I can count upon my digits, to be his tax inspector, university pre-elector, the ministry of monuments and midgets. Master of ceremonies, curator of the cemeteries, I have a million grave considerations. I am guardian of the folio of intrigue and imbroglio, transcender of the royal meditations. I'm official body snatcher. I'm his majesty's back scratcher. The venerable keeper of the tusk, another high appointment, is custodian of the ointment. I'm chancellor of the darkness after dusk. Now, since the peacock party, the king, once hale and hearty, has slid into a slow and sad decline. By his recent grand decree, we're to have a jamboree, and the huge responsibility is mine. It is my sole duty to prepare a night of beauty to exhilarate, bedazzle, and entrance. We shall have a masquerade and a carnival parade with all of its best of magic song and dance. Fantastical and comic, our farrago of a frolic will banish all the demons of the dark. My most supreme attainment is a lord of entertainment, the knight of glee and grand symposariach. With magical powers beyond mortal ken, the king's necromancer, Cassandra, knows when the royal fun may begin. Cassandra. Dippity, dappity. Dubbity Dan, am I a goat, or am I a man? Dibbity, dabbity, dubbity dee. What is the future that I can foresee? My heart is wicked 
and my soul is black. I conjure the signs of the zodiac. My bones are yellow and my blood is gall. Images form in my crystal ball. The serpent fang of my fingernail spits out stars like a storm of hail. Capricorn, Scorpio, dragon and bear, I gather the universe out of the air. When shall be a proprietor's day? Only the planets I summon can say. How they align when Leonis grins shall decide when the great festivity begins. What kind of maker of magic am I? Dibbity, dabbity, dubbity, die. The horns of the devil sprout out of my head. Dibbity, dabbity, dubbity, dead. The show is underway. The curtain rises soon on a ballerina lighter than a hot air balloon. The ballerina. From far off Siam to the snows of Alaska, the best impresarios bandy my name. I'm Madame Pavlovna, modest Nijinaska, the dowager countess of nutcracker fame. Although I'm the object of much adulation, the darling of emperors, nabobs, and czars, between each and every standing ovation, I'm more highly strung than a thousand guitars. They love my depiction of tragic Narcissi, adored me in Sylphid's Swan Lake and Giselle, in the Romanoff theatre tattling Colissi. It's whispered that Benoit once loved me as well. Fuet et yet, ma belle pirouette, je fais la gargolette, en l'air, assemble les écus, ma svelte silhouette, enfant je descendrai et terre. Tonight I am commanded by Leonine Majesty. Have I my customary panache and flair? My tummy has butterflies, oh, what a travesty, if I should fall down on my trenderrière. We have a new ballet, the sea birth of Venus, that's choreographed by one William Shrimp. His steps are demanding. Pray God I'm not seen as his first asulata to land with a limp. The curtain is rising. Oh, weightless I waft, a gossamer feathering midsummer shores. The lightest breath lifts me. I'm carried aloft till I drown in the surf of tumultuous applause. We humans cling to strands of hope when full of worry and despair. If only we could climb its rope to untold happiness somewhere. The Fakir Mysterious as a cloud assembling through a summer sky's intensity of blue, a sudden figuration from thin air, disturbingly but beautifully there, from some far-off and half-forgotten age, an instant Fakir fills our empty stage. 
His home is farther than the farthest star in days gone by where all things wondrous are preserved forever from the clutch of time. For in that land where clocks can never chime or tick the precious hours of life away, it takes eternity to make one day. He now performs the rope trick. At his word, a silken hank uncoils, and like a bird that trails a plated tail, it starts to fly, upright as though suspended through the sky. Then, one by one, without a trace of fear, the animals all climb and disappear. The last one gone, the magic fakir makes a withering forest grow of scaly snakes, and all amid the weird serpent dance, he rises slowly, cast into a trance. He floats in space ten feet above the floor, a puff of smoke, and he is seen no more. In the best of all worlds, no home would be without a Chinese teapot with a magical spout. Wu Cheng En. And next, the inscrutable wizard of Kiang Su. There's no magic he can't do. From sleight of hand to feats of levitation, hocus pocus to prestidigitation. Tonight, he performs with the dragon cornucopia presented to him by the Emperor of Utopia with an abracadabra. Hey presto, see? The tea party poured by the witching chimpanzee. All alive, oh, in the madcap jumble, crockery, dainties, and silverware tumble, slices of flan, a gingerbread man, Battenberg lavished with rich marzipan, coconut whispers and cherry top cakes, better than any patissier bakes, cream horns and custards and crumbly meringue, linked chipolatas of savoury tang, pastries and pies and a Swiss jam roll, jellies and trifles and profiteroles, biscuits and teaspoons and end Endless festoons of sugar mice, gatto, and sweet macaroons. Will you have an apple strudel or a chocolate eclair? There's more than enough for all of us to share. And before he returns to his Chinese pagoda, the mystery man adds a brilliant coda of cool lemonade in a sparkling cascade and a bowl overflowing with ice cream soda. Providing that the whole is more than the sum of the parts must surely be the goal of the theatrical arts. The Gorilla Circus Who is this impresario grinning with glee and guile? It's Captain Alligator, who's voyaged many a mile in his circus since embezzling the funds of the bank of the Nile. Circumvating Earth via Mexico and Manila, the captain's mad menagerie embarks in a small flotilla of tugs that tow the hulk of Gargantia the gorilla. Now, as any ancient mariner well knows, it's commonplace on the ocean-going vessels to be so short of space that often on the quarter-deck they have to splice a brace. So all of Gator's animals have taken the form of two... Wander the world forever, but I will wager you will never find a more bizarre amphibological zoo! Sea lion, dogfish, tiger moth, what monstrous handicraft has gone into the masking of a creature quite as daft as turtle dove, soft feathers fore and armour plating aft? Captain Gator's fear of shipwreck accounts of his haunted stare. When Seahorse was washed aboard, he acquired a new nightmare, which whinnies about ruin and a cupboard perpetually bare. 
The pachyderm rhinoceros creates quite a stir, parading all the terrors of the earth that ever were. The epic procession. And now begin the cavalcade. Floats in a slow procession of Herculean grandeur, made a dignified progression portraying every epic theme that's known on tumbrils rumbling past the royal throne. The weathers of the world rolled by with earthquake, tempest, ice and flood beneath a dome of endless sky, where sunrise rinsed the clouds in blood and molten lava flung from loud volcanoes, solidified in arctic hurricanoes. Behind them, electricity picked up fallen thunderbolts and, crackling with alacrity, turned them into amps and vaults. A dynamo of verse he made his mark, potentially the evening's brightest spark. Then all the elements came in, ethereal mishelium, base old iron, Sir Cornish tin, unstable Lord Uranium, and Vesta Phosphorus, who, with acrimony, rubbed shoulders with abrasive antimony. All huge events of history went past as though they'd never cease. Creation's every mystery of love and beauty, harmony and peace, till demons of the black havoc and Satan's law dragged Rhino in as Mars, the god of war. Lo, she approaches, most wondrous to behold, the purring lady with a heart of pure gold. The Jaguar Lady no sun ever shone upon lost Eldorado. Queen Serenissima, sovereign of night, empress of lambency, princess of lustre, prohibits her empire to heavenly light, for the glow of a solitary mist-milky star would multiply fifty quantilonfold, if mirrored among all her gilt cordilleras and nugget-hewn cities of lustrant gold bedazzling soft sloth in the Kruger-rand palm, goldfinch and gold-crest and forest-floor folk, the pliant armadillo, the odd pangolin, with scales like the leaves of a globe artichoke, so only her eyes may illumine the dusk of a continent far beyond man-charted land, where ingots bestrew every limitless seashore, embedded in gold dust as common as sand. Imagine that country of marigold landscape that gleams in the darkness when she is awake, and the beam of her gaze brings a glistering autumn to the gold-leafed thickets of the Bouillon Lake. Aztec diademed, the jaguar lady appears before King Lion and unlocks caskets of gifts for his golden majesty. Vases, trinkets and a musical box of monkeys made from melted doubloons playing selections of golden old tunes. Beware after nightfall if the jungle's timber dry lest the terrifying sparks of the tiger start to fly. The Tiger then fell a darkness as of a diamond mine, deep underground, where gems of a blinding brilliance lie yet to be found, and into the mineral silence, menacing, 
there came the sound of something newborn and of terrible power, engendered by fire in the cellars of chaos, by flame-fingered demons, white-hot as desire, tending the flambeau and smouldering braziers of Vulcan's empire. The fizz of its insistent, whispering hiss in the jungle night as a fuse of saltpetre lit at the earth's centre, racing up to ignite the pyrotechnic tiger from Royal Bengal, who burned as bright as a billion diamonds through into the sunshine, a tapestry of filaments incandescent with firebirds, and the poetry of salamanders, dragons, and phoenixes ablaze in perfect symmetry. What better to beguile the final hours of darkness than some special fruits and flowers? Flora, zoological. Chameleon, the colour master, now regales his royal audience with a bow, announcing that a brilliant bouquet will close the cavalcade with a display of creatures who, this night of nights he claims, will demonstrate the aptness of their names. Transmogrified, the tiger lily prowls through thickets where the watchful dog rose growls at a puss moth poised to a spring on dainty paws from ripe crab apples armed with pincering claws. Gaggles of gooseberries glide upon the cool and dimpled waters of a summer pool where crocodilia sinisterly lurks for turtle flowers paddling through the murk, the monocled Sir Dandelion twirls his curled mustachios and ogles girls like ladybird whose feathers lift her higher than dragonflies can hover, breathing fire, while monkey flowers chatter, hunting for fleas, and horse chestnuts gallop under the trees. Chameleon elaborates his joke with a Toad lily that can hop and croak. Can you spot others of this curious ilk, like spider orchid spinning her fine silk? Next time the sunflower beams by dazzling light with three waxing moonflowers just as bright, you'll surely hear high in the southern sky herds of elephant moths stampede by. <laughs> Performers who wish to conserve their sang-froid should conserve rather less their avoirdupois. The Company of Pork When it was noticed that nothing had made His Majesty smile through the whole cavalcade, a courtier whispered, It is my belief our pageant could do with some comic relief. His neighbour consulting his programme opined that everyone present was of like mind. But could they expect A Midsummer Night's Dream to provide what was needed? A right royal scream. The curtains were parted, and how infradig! The King of the Fairies was played by a pig! None other than Herbert de Mandible Tusker, that ever so awful Shakespearean busker. And no one had witnessed a spectacle zanier than Gamwon Rasha, his wife as Titania. Bacon had written the words of the bard. 
The courtier tittered. Those mountains of lard might be more appropriate. Oh, what a sham! How they both hog the stage! How they both ham! That bore of a bore! How ungainly he totters! And see how she minces on delicate trotters! King Lion embarrassedly bit on his chuckle, unable to stifle a runaway chuckle, and all of a sudden his happy and glorious shoulders were shaking with laughter uproarious. He cackled and guffawed, he sniggered and giggled, he roared when the actors fell higgledy-piggledy, tickled that humbug and jiggery-pokery ended with a farcical piggery-jokery. The fireflies in the footlights were extinguished one by one. The marvellous spectacular is finished, over and done. The theatre is empty. Janitor Reynard brings his brush, and while he sweeps the royals ride homeward, and the dawn thrush keeps chirruping this message, There's no reason, and no rhyme, why jollity shouldn't be thought in season any old time. Thank you so much for listening. You can read two of these poems online. I'll leave a link to them in the show notes. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.